continuing our series today. By the way, I'm Barrett, one of the pastors here, and uh, we're continuing our series today, Your Name. And the heart of this series is that we might know God more. Uh, One of the church fathers, Augustine, said, uh, our hearts are made for you, and they're restless until they find their rest in you. And indeed, that is truth. We are made for God. We are made for relationship with God. A lot of people mistake what it means to really know God. We're not talking about knowing about God as if understanding things with our head, although that is very important to know what is true. But our heart here at ICC and as followers of Jesus is to really know God in our personal life and in our experience. To know the fulfillment of the prayer that Jesus prayed for all who would believe in John chapter 17, verse 3. He prayed this. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Jeremiah talks about this, let the one who boasts, boast not in his strength, boast not in his wisdom and his knowledge and his riches, but let the one who boasts, boast in this, boast in that you understand and know the Lord. That's why Paul says in Philippians chapter 3, which we've covered before, this is the passionate pursuit of his life. He says, whatever gain I had, I counted it as loss for this because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord. So we have a heart here. Do you have a heart this morning for this? That you might know more of God, not just know more about God, but truly in your personal experience and daily life, that you might be growing in your experience of the true and living God, growing in your relationship with Him. That is the heart of this series. And we call it Your Name because the way that we're walking through this series, if you're new this morning, is we're actually walking through the names of God. And I've told you over the last few weeks that the names in the Bible, all across the Bible, are significant because they mean something about a person's character, about a person's worth. It helps us to know something about the person. And such is true of the names of God. Uh, The names, God, you know, we read in our Bible just God, but God gives himself many names to us. We can call him by many names that he himself has given to us. Why has he done this? To help us know him, to help us be able to trust him and to follow him and live in relationship to grow in our love and affection for him. So we're just walking through the names together and I've asked you to memorize those two verses. Have y'all been working on those? Proverbs 18 verse 10, your name, the name of the Lord is a strong and mighty tower. The righteous run into it and are safe. And then Psalm chapter 20 verse 7, some trust Come on, y'all. You got it? Some tr- you saw on the screen. This is not cool. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we, we trust in the name of the Lord our God. The Bible's trying to help us to see that our trust is not just a blind trust. Our trust is in one who can be known. And one of the ways we know him and we can trust him is because of his name, his name's representing his character. 
That's why we pray our prayers in Jesus' name, amen. It's not something magical about those five letters, but the name of Jesus represents his person. And so we're praying in light of who he is and what he has done and what he has promised. Because we know him, we can pray in confidence in his name. Tracking? So, are y'all ready for a new name this morning? I need some more excitement and engagement. All right. I'm just saying. Some of you had coffee. Some of you need to go get coffee. Okay? I'm fine with that. If it helps you, go get it. Um, Let me pray, and we'll continue our time together this morning. Father, thank you for this day of worship. And uh, I thank you, God, so much for the incredible joy that it is to know you. Like Paul, we count everything as loss compared to this, the surpassing worth, the surpassing greatness of knowing you, our God. Lord, you made each of us, and the purpose of our life is for this purpose, that we might know you. So God, this morning we're coming just desiring so much that you speak to us from your living word that you work in our hearts by your living spirit. We know that the only hope that we have to know you is the divine, supernatural, grace-filled work of God in our hearts. So, Lord, we are begging for you this morning to meet us and to speak to us. Lord, give us ears to listen. May the word of God, the seed of the word, find good soil in our hearts. Would we not resist what you're speaking, but would we open ourselves to allow your word to touch us? God, we need you. We thank you for your Holy Spirit. And we pray this will glorify you and point us to Jesus, our Savior, in your name. Amen. Well, if you've got your Bibles this morning, please open them to Genesis chapter 17. Genesis chapter 17. I've been walking through uh, some names, and I'm walking through, I'm not covering all the names in Scripture, but I am going to cover the names that we cover in this series in the order that they are revealed. And this morning... We're going to be just a chapter behind where we were last week. So last week we're in Genesis 16. If you missed that message, please go and listen online. This morning we're in Genesis chapter 17. And I'll go ahead and read um, the verses here. Everybody there? I'm reading from the English Standard Version. I'll start in verse 1. We're going to read just the first three. We'll look at some more later, but right now just the first three. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you, and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face. And God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, But your name shall be called Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. The name we're looking at this morning, if you've got something to write with, I always encourage you to take notes. Please uh, don't just sit through the message, but engage with the word of God. I, I am not helped by you just listening to me. I'm helped by knowing that you're really leaning in and desiring to listen to God and desiring to live in what he speaks to us. 
The name that we're looking at this morning is El Shaddai. Anybody ever heard of this name? There's an old song back in the 90s. If you're old enough to have lived in the 90s, El Shaddai, El Shaddai. I don't even know the words, the rest of the words really well. It's Adonai. That's what everybody does, right? El Shaddai. That's what we're going to be looking at this morning. Everybody say that with me. Look, you guys are speaking Hebrew. It's awesome. So, what we know is uh, the occasion of this revelation of the name comes right here in Genesis chapter 17. And a little bit of context so you understand uh, the, the, the context for which this name is revealed is what you essentially have is a confirmation that's being made to Abraham. Okay? What we know is back in Genesis chapter 12, okay, in verse 2, I'm going to point a couple of references here just to help you see what God is doing. He's just confirming things to Abraham in this moment that he's already promised to Abraham. In Genesis 12, 2, and I will make of you, Abraham, he asked Abraham to leave his life behind and to follow him, and he says, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. In Genesis chapter 13, verse 16, God says to him, I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth so that if no one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also cannot be counted. So he's saying, I'm going to make your your seed, your family spread like the dust of the earth. And then in Genesis chapter 15, verse 5, God brings Abraham outside and he says, look toward the heaven and the number of the stars, if you're able to number them. And then he said to him, so shall your offspring be, Abraham. And it says that Abraham believed the Lord. This is a very famous verse in the Bible. Genesis chapter 15, verse 6. So God is promising to Abraham, he'd make him a great nation, and he would make uh, his seed great. And through his family, God would do great and innumerable things. And it says in verse 6 of chapter 15 that Abraham believed the Lord. He believed the Lord. And it was counted to him as, what? Righteousness. Now Paul picks up on this, if you don't remember from Romans chapter 4. We're not going to turn there. But Paul picks picks up on this to help us understand the doctrine of the justification by faith. That we are made right with God by our faith in him. And this is exactly where he's referencing that Abraham believed the Lord and God counted it to him as righteousness. But interestingly, as we move from chapter to chapter to chapter, from that initial promise in, verse, in chapter 12 to the point that we've turned to this morning in chapter 17, what we see in the story is that that faith that was reckoned to him as righteousness began to dim a little, didn't it? As the years went by, I mean, Abraham was already old, but as the, weir- as the years went by and there was no fulfillment of the promise, Abraham began to grow a little bit less filled with faith. It dimmed and it dimmed and it dimmed a little more to the point that Abraham, as years lapsed, they began to wonder, well, where is God? And where is this fulfillment of the promise that God has made? To the point that we get to the chapter that we looked at last week, 
when Abraham and Sarah are doubting God to the degree that they take matters into their own hands, trying to bring about the promise through their own sin, fleshly expediency, and hurting others and themselves along the way. And now, now, chapter 17, Abraham's 99 years old, the promise by human reckoning impossible to fulfill, but is anything too hard for God? And it's here, Genesis chapter 17, right here, that God is showing up to Abraham to help Abraham know that nothing is impossible with God. I want to walk through briefly the name, okay, just to help you understand a little bit of the name. I told you that English sometimes just doesn't suffice, right? What does y'all's Bible say in verse 1? Mine says, when Abraham was 90 years old, the Lord appeared to Abraham and said to him, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless. Did y'all say God Almighty? Yeah? Most English translations will say God Almighty. In Hebrew, we translate this This is exactly where El Shaddai comes from. This is what it looks like in the Hebrew, El Shaddai. But I almost feel like, I don't almost feel like, I definitely feel like, the English translation of this name is just lacking. Because when I think of God Almighty, what do I typically think of? What do you typically think of? We think of a strong and mighty and powerful God, right? Okay, thank you. Thank you. I was thinking, maybe I'm the only one. Okay, that's typically what we think of. But reality, remember what I told you guys last week, as we get these compound names, see, Elohim was the primary name that the the people of Genesis knew God by. This, This first word of this El Shaddai is a reference, a connection to Elohim. El is a short version of Elohim. And what did I tell you last week Elohim meant? It means what? A strong and mighty and prominent, all-powerful God. So, you, you almost, if you only stick with God Almighty and think about it in terms of just strength and power, then you're, you're almost missing, you're not almost, you are missing something in the fullness of what this name represents. So, Elohim, here's the L, it means God of all power. So that's the first part of this compound name, but it's definitely not all of this compound name. Again, I just reference a couple other places so you can understand what I'm saying. In Psalm uh, chapter 77, verse 14, for instance, I think we have a reference here. It says, you are the God, and literally it just says, El in Hebrew, who works wonders. You have made known your might among the peoples. In Psalm chapter 68, verse 35, it says, The El, the God of Israel, gives power and strength to his people. In Deuteronomy chapter 3, verse 24, it says, What God, what El, is there in heaven or on earth who can do such works and mighty acts as yours? I'm only referencing this because there's a lot of teacher in me. And I just want you to know that inherent in the word El is a, a representation of the might and the power of God. Okay? So, 
Let's go back to El Shaddai. So we got that in there. God of might, God of power, the mighty God. That's represented in El. What about Shaddai? What about Shaddai? This is where I, I was trying to help you see that I don't know that God Almighty is necessarily the best. It, it doesn't provide us the fullest understanding of, of what this name means. I'll, I'll put up a couple little facts here about uh, Shaddai. The word is used over 48 times in the Old Testament. And it is, in our English, often translated Almighty. But the root word of this word, Shad, in the Hebrew, is translated typically as breast. So associated with this understanding of the word, when we're talking about breast in the scripture, okay, we're talking about an understanding. Now, mothers, here it is, Father's Day, but I'm going to talk about moms for a second, all right? Moms understand this because when a baby is crying or when a baby is hungry, by God's beautiful design, God provides sustenance and peace and rest up close to the mother. The, the mother, in a way, satisfies that child, in a way, nourishes that child, in a way, supplies what is needed for the child, right? So, if you can understand this, then if you, you can connect it with Shaddai, and basically the word implies one who nourishes, who satisfies, who supplies. Now, if you connect that back with El, El Shaddai, what you end up with is this. One who is mighty or powerful to nourish, to satisfy, and to supply. I believe this is the best understanding of this really interesting name that God gives us. Now, I'm going to, I don't want you to just take my bullet points for granted. Some of you are going, huh? I don't know. Not convinced. I, I want to take you through a series of scriptures where the word is used or references of the same imagery of God is used to help you understand that this is not, this is not an unusual idea about God. One who is mighty to nourish, to satisfy, to supply. In Isaiah chapter 60, verses 15 to 16, it says this. O Lord, whereas you have been forsaken and hated with no one passing through, I will make you majestic forever. A joy from age to age. This is what God is saying to his people. In verse 16, he says this. You shall suck the milk of nations. You shall nurse at the breast of kings. And you shall know that I, the Lord, am your Savior and your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Israel. In Isaiah chapter 66, again, one mighty to nourish satisfy and supply. Isaiah chapter 66 verses 10 through 13. It says this, rejoice with Jerusalem and be glad for her. All you who love her rejoice with her in joy. All you who mourn over her that you may nurse and be satisfied from her consoling breast. 
that you may drink deeply with delight from, from her glorious abundance. In verse 12, he goes on and says, For thus says the Lord, Behold, I will extend peace to her like a river, and the glory of the nations like an overflowing stream. And you shall nurse, you shall be carried upon her hip and bounced upon her knees as one who is mother comfort, so I will comfort you. You shall be comforted in Jerusalem. God showing himself, one mighty to nourish, mighty to satisfy, mighty to supply. John chapter 7. We know that Jesus stands up on multiple occasions. He uses imagery of what it's like to have a relationship with Jesus. Just in the chapter before this one, he talks about needing to eat of his flesh and drink of his blood to find our life sustenance from his very body. It's a similar picture, isn't it? And then in John chapter 7, he stands up amidst the crowd and on the last day of the feast, it says, he cried out, if anyone thirst, let him come to me and drink. Reminiscent of Isaiah chapter 55, verses 1 to 3. Many of you guys know that. Come and drink and eat without any money. You come and receive from what God gives. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Psalm chapter 81, verse 10. I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Open your mouth wide and I will fill it. Y'all hearing the imagery here? God helping us see that he is mighty God. Y'all believe that? There is no one like our God. But his might has effect in our lives. He offers himself to us in all of his power. He avails himself to us that we might drink from the goodness and the fullness of who he is. Like a newborn to their mother, God is mighty to nourish, to satisfy, and to supply. One more reference, Genesis Chapter 48, 49, excuse me, verses 24 to 25. This is uh, words recorded and he says, by the hands of the mighty one of Jacob, from there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel, by the God of your father who will help you, by the almighty who will bless you with blessings of heaven above, blessings of the deep that crouches beneath blessings of the breast and blessings of the wound. God using this imagery again to describe how he blesses. Mighty to nourish, to satisfy, and to supply. One more um, interesting just note. In the Greek, so the Hebrew Bible was translated into Greek. We call it the Septuagint. And what happened is, this is, I don't want to geek out on you, but what happened was they basically used the Greek language to translate what was without understanding to many of the Greek speakers of Jesus' day. And when they translated this word, what they used is the word ikonos. 
And that word basically means the sufficient one. It's not the almighty one. That's inherent in the fact in Elohim. But they use the word the sufficient one, the all-sufficient one. And I really believe that this is the basis of understanding El Shaddai more than our English word almighty. Yes, write it down. God mighty to nourish, satisfy, and supply. But what I would offer to you as a translation for you if you're calling on the name of the Lord is this. God, my sufficiency. Or you could say mighty God, my sufficiency. But I really believe at the heart of what God is showing us in this particular name is God is coming to us and he is saying, I am your sufficiency. Here's, here's what it means. A couple of points for you. We have an all-powerful God. I think all of us agree this morning, right? But because he's all-powerful, he's also all-sufficient and he's all-bountiful. You, you can't have one without the other. Because he's all-powerful, there's nothing that stands in his way. He can do anything and everything to provide for you right now and in every time of your need. He is all-sufficient in every way. Nothing can stop our God. Therefore, He can be for you and do for you and come through for you every single time, which means He's completely sufficient for you. And He's all-bountiful. There's nothing that He cannot give. He gives and gives and gives and gives and gives. This is who God is, and you can't take it away from Him. and You can't change Him. He's all-bountiful. He can carry out his plans and purposes. I hope you all right now. He can carry out his plans and purposes to their fullest and most glorious completion. Many of us like to be planners, but I'll tell you, you're not as good of a planner as God is. God plans, and he can come through on his plans every single time. And not just does he come through, but he comes through with glittering gold. He comes through... And it is glorious in the way that it's completed. It is perfect. And, and for me, who's a planner, I, I marvel and I love and adore God for how beautiful he is. How wonderful of a God he is and how mighty he is to accomplish everything that he puts his hands to. And he does it perfectly every single time. He never makes a mistake. How awesome is that? He is able, like Paul prayed in Ephesians 3, to do exceedingly abundantly beyond anything that you could ever ask or imagine he is able he's sufficient these two words on this last point I really want you to pay attention to them because I think this is where it really it really comes home for us he is able to bless us and to bring fullness and fruitfulness to us Because he is all-powerful, and because he is all-sufficient, and because he is all-bountiful, that means for you and for me today that when I'm hungry, he can fill me. When I'm desirous of purpose, he can make me fruitful. When I'm believing his promise, he will come through. He is my sufficiency, my El Shaddai. And he is wonderful in all his ways.
that's at the heart of what this name means. Y'all tracking? El Shaddai, God my sufficiency. Now, let's go back to the Bible. Genesis chapter 17. Y'all still there? All right. So knowing something about the name, I want... See, what, I, what I've told you before, I'll tell you again now, these names are revealed not in a list of like, you know, they, God could have just opened the page and then just made a bullet point of all of the names and then just said, memorize these and, and enjoy me. And, and we, would have, we would have had a good English lesson, right? But I'm so thankful that God didn't just choose to reveal his name to us, but he chose to reveal them in the context of story. Story of people's lives who are normal people who are just like you and me, seeking to trust and follow God. And because of the way God revealed his name, we've got to not just look at the vocabulary to understand intellectually, oh, that's cool, God's El Shaddai, I understand that more now. No, I, I, I need to understand that, yes, but I've got to figure out how to live in line of who God is. And God gives us this incredible story to help us understand who he is. So, we know up to this point, Genesis 17, Abraham had some understanding of who God was, right? We knew, he knows that God is Elohim. He knows that he is the great and all-powerful God who created everything, to whom life is owed. He knows that God has called him, and he's believed God in that call, and his life is owed to him, and he's followed God up to this point. He's left comfortable circumstances and friends and family to follow God on a risky journey to go to the promised land. And we know Abraham's not a young dude when he first receives the call. He's just not. He's pretty advanced in years when God first calls him in Genesis 12. And we know that God, that Abraham for many years waits and waits and waits in faith. And God assures him of the promise. But yet what we saw at the beginning is Abraham begins to grow more dim in his faith. He begins to disbelieve more. Where is God? Where is this promise? How is this going to happen? Have I been fooled? I mean, it's just, did God have some other plan in mind? Maybe I, I need to play a part in this to the point that we, like I said earlier, we get to Genesis chapter 16 when it appears that it's too late, humanly speaking, he and Sarah take matters into their own hand. He goes and he gets Hagar pregnant who worked for them. Did that work? No. And his sin actually continued to compound the fruitlessness and actually brought even greater frustration into their life. Hear me. Between 16 and 17, the chapters... 13 more years pass. Sometimes we read these stories and we just think, oh, it's, why is it so hard for him to wait? No, no, no. You're talking about decades of his life where God had given him a promise, but he had not seen the fulfillment. Between his mistake with Hagar and the start of chapter 17, 13 more years pass. Abraham, what's it say in verse 1? How old is he? 99 years old. And I don't know about you, but I think we could probably make a medical determination that it is no longer possible for him, according to the flesh, to have a baby. Can I say that, babe? 
maybe not. She said maybe not. When you're 99, anybody, anybody expect great-granddad to, get, to give birth? I'm just saying, most of us, when, you, when you're that old, you're not thinking, I'm going to have a child. And I actually believe, though, I actually believe that God had him wait and 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 wait until Abraham and Sarah knew that the only way that this would be possible would not be because of what they did, but only because of God and what he would do for them. He waited for their flesh to die. And then, 99, Genesis chapter 17. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, It's here. He's so old that, and look, look down at verse 17. I know we're skipping a little bit far down, but chapter 17, verse 17. After God is promising that this child is going to be born at this age, it says in verse 17, Then Abram fell on his face and did what? Laughed and said, Are you kidding me? That's not what he said. Kind of. Shall a child be born to a man who is 100 years old? Shall Sarah, who is 99 years old, bear a son? Are you kidding me? And God comes to him. Go back to the beginning of the chapter. When Abraham, when Abraham is at this point, no longer possible according to Abraham, no longer possible according to Sarah, at this point, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am El Shaddai. I am your God, your mighty God, and I am your sufficiency. I am your God who can nourish and satisfy and supply. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. In other words, God's showing up and he goes, Oh, Abram, Abram, I'm about to teach you something so cool you're not even going to believe it. I'm a God who can take your dead body and give you a son. I can make you fruitful again. I can fill you and satisfy you. You watch me, Abram. You have thought that I'm a God who may not come through, but I'm going to tell you I come through, and I come through with glory. I come through. You hope in me because I'm not finished yet. I'm a God who is sufficient. Everything I promise, I bring to fulfillment. And the way forward is not by you, it's by me. 
You see what God's saying? I am the one, the promise giver and the promise fulfiller. And it says, verse 3, that Abram fell on his face. In other words, Abram believes God. He comes to a point in his life where he has been so desperate. Some of us understand this. I mean, where you've believed a promise and you've held on for so long. And you've wondered, is this promise real? Will it really be fulfilled? Maybe it's a scriptural promise or a personal promise. Some of us understand this. And he's held on for so long and he's been rebuked in his sin. And his fleshly attempts to fulfill it which have failed. And he's continued for another 13 years to wait on the Lord. And the Lord shows up and he says, Oh, Abram, I'm not finished yet. I'm the Lord. I am the God, the mighty God who is your sufficiency. And Abraham gets what that means. And he falls on his face in faith, in amazement and adoration. We know this is what he does because, like I said, Romans 4 earlier. Let's go back to that real quick. At the end of Romans chapter 4, Paul tells us something else about the nature of faith. He says about Abram that he did not weaken in faith. This is verse 19 through 22. Abram did not weaken in faith. Even when he considered his own body. We're talking about a 99-year-old body. Can you imagine your granddad or your great-granddad believing the Lord for another child? This is Abram. Even when he looked at his own body, he did not waver in faith since he was about 100. Or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's wounds. Medically, that's even harder, right? Okay, Michelle confirmed that. Even when you're looking at your grandmother or great-grandmother, they're still believing God in faith for a specific promise that he's given them for a son. Can you imagine? He didn't waver. They still held on. No unbelief, Paul says about Abraham, made him waver concerning the promise of God. But he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced. Can y'all say that with me? Fully convinced that what? God was able to do what he had promised. What I would say is that God could be his sufficiency. Fully convinced that God was able. Our Elohim God, he is mighty. He is able. Able to do what? To nourish satisfy and supply, able to keep his promise, able to be my sufficiency, able to do what he had promised. And that is why, that is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. Praise God. Abraham, here's what I'd say, friends. Abraham and Sarah had to learn that what God promises, only God can give. Same thing you got to learn and I got to learn. What God promises, only God can give. God alone 
is sufficient and God alone is satisfying. And it is God alone who can fill us and make us fruitful. What God promises, only he can give. This is who God is. But you know what else they had to realize? See, in God's giving of himself as the all-sufficient one, there is also a judgment of Abraham and Sarah. Y'all see this? As God reveals himself all-sufficient, part of what Abraham recognizes is that he is insufficient. Part of what Abraham and Sarah have to come to a place where they despair of themselves to the point that they are so desperate for God that they know their only hope is not in what they can do to help God out in fulfillment of the promise, but their only hope is in God and God alone and what he can do to fulfill the promise. In an understanding of his sufficiency, we understand our own insufficiency. We have to understand that it is futile to rely on our own effort. It's stupid to impatiently run ahead of God. The bodies of both of them had to die first. It's similar to like Jacob. You remember? He had to wrestle with God, come away with a limp. Y'all remember that? Before he was able to go to the promised land. Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me. In other words, you want to experience. He says this. Whoever wants to experience life will first lose it. See, in coming to a place where we have the opportunity to experience the fullness and fruitfulness of God, guess what that means for you? You got to die first. You got to come to a place where you are willing and able to say, There's no way I could do it. There's no way. It's, it's not happening with me, it's not happening by me, it's not happening through me. The only way is to happen. Through God. And I will tell you this that the less empty of yourself that you are, the less blessing that God can pour into you. God's sufficiency is given in relation to our understanding of our own insufficiency. The more full of ourself that we are, the less blessing that we will experience. The more pride and self-sufficiency that we have, the less fruit that we will bear for his name. It's just reality. But Abraham and Sarah come to this beautiful place where they see the Lord. And he falls on his face in belief, knowing that God is a sufficiency. And what's so cool, so if you, one of the things I just think is so cool is if you go to verse four, after Abraham falls on his face, God says to him, behold, my covenant is with you and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be called Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. He, he changes Abram's name. Abram means exalted father. Abraham means father of a multitude. 
And the interesting thing to me is that what he puts into Abram's name is the hey in the Hebrew. He goes from Abram to Abraham. And that hey is the exact principal consonant. It's right in the middle of God's name in the Hebrew. It is, it is only pronounced by giving out air. It's, it's almost as if there's a recognition that here's a man who has just gone from relying upon his, his himself to relying completely upon the Lord. And I'm going to mark this man's name differently now because something has changed in this guy since he's met El Shaddai. This guy is no longer marked by himself. This guy is marked by the indwelling presence of God in his life. The very name of God breathed into Abram. You are no longer Abram. You are Abraham. You are a man filled with me. You have come to understand my sufficiency. You're not relying on yourself. You're relying on me. And therefore, I will make of you something greater than you could ever imagine. Because you're not hoping in your promise-keeping ability. You're hoping in my promise-keeping ability. And those who hope in my promise-keeping ability will see great and amazing things. Because their life is not defined by themselves, but defined by the true and living God. I wonder how many of us have had our names changed by the sufficiency, the all-sufficiency, the powerful sufficiency of our God. How many of us are no longer marked by what we can do, but have the very presence of God indwelling in our lives, such that we are known now as people who trust in the sufficiency of our Savior? Amen? This is so cool to me. He changes his name. And not only that, but he comes behind the name and he just promises. He repeats these promises. And all the promises are, I will, I will, I will. God's saying, I will make you very fruitful in verse 6. I, I will make you the father of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful and will give you nations and king will come to you. Verse 7, I will establish my covenant between me and you. In verse 8, I will give to you, you and your offspring, the land. I will, I will, I will. In other words, God's saying, for those who trust me as their El Shaddai, who lean on me as their sufficiency, your life will be marked by what I will do. And I can do great and amazing things for all who trust in me. That's what he's saying. I got out of breath. <clears throat> El Shaddai, God, my sufficiency. I want to talk about you as we close this morning. I just wonder, you know, I, I think there are many, I know our church, and I know most of the people here, I know things that we live in, we're going through, I know some of the specific situations that you're facing. And I just wonder, you know, where our hearts are. Could be spiritual battles that we're facing. Could be struggles with sin. Could be relationship issues, things that we have longed for. Could be just holding on to scriptural promise. Could be holding on to a specific and personal promise that God has made you. Holding on to, to faith. I believe that we are a body who desires to believe God but I also know that many of us are in places of waiting waiting on the fulfillment of promise 
just like Abraham and Sarah, some of us have maybe gotten to a place that you feel like the faith that was once really alive in you. Like, I'm going to believe God. I'm going to hold on to faith, and it's going to be awesome. I'm going to see him fulfilled now. You, you're, you're, it's not as alive anymore. Things have dimmed a bit. You find yourself frustrated sometimes. You find yourself even questioning if you should continue in faith. Some of us may be even tempted, or maybe you've actually already experienced walking in sin, trying to take things into your own hands, and the fruitlessness that comes from that, and ultimately the frustration that comes from that. And I just, I just wonder this morning, if, if we're not like Abraham, where we've somehow begun to think this is not going to happen, or this is impossible, or I just don't know. But I'm telling you that God showed up to Abraham and Sarah for them, but he also showed up to them so that today he could show up to you. And he's saying to you, in this place of waiting, when everything feels like there's no way possible, they're 99 and 100, they had to come to the point where they recognize it's not possible in any other way. But I want to tell you that God came to them and he comes to you today to speak to you, I can make everything possible. I am El Shaddai, the mighty one who is sufficient for all things. Every longing you have, I can satisfy. Every need you have, I can nourish you. Every promise that you're holding on to, I can fulfill. I am your sufficiency. I just urge you to look to Jesus, our Savior. Jesus, God in flesh who came for us. The cross is an ever-present testimony that God gives and he gives and he gives. He pours out and pours out and he pours out his very lifeblood for you. There is no other testimony than you need than the cross of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ to remind you that his grace is sufficient and his power is made perfect in your weakness. The cross speaks of God's sufficiency. This is who he is. This is what he does. In John 15, Jesus says, I am the vine and you are the branches. Abide in me and I in you as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. See, the vine is our sufficiency. He's saying, I am your sufficiency. Stay close to me. You, you can't do it on your own. I'm the vine, you are the branch. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears more fruit. But apart from me, you can do nothing. To experience your own sufficiency, which God is, Jesus is, you have to come to a place where you despair of yourself. Your knowledge doesn't bring anything to the table. Your goodness doesn't bring anything to the table. Your efforts doesn't bring anything to the table. Your strength doesn't bring anything to the table. Your merit doesn't bring anything to the table. Your race doesn't bring anything to the table. Your religious works don't bring anything to the table. Your family doesn't bring anything to the table. Your education doesn't bring anything to the table. Your control doesn't bring anything to the table. You don't bring anything to the table. Your only hope and sufficiency is God and God alone. 
But I'm here today to tell you that he is a powerful and sufficient one. Praise God for his grace. He is our sufficiency. And when we come to that place, he marks us by his indwelling presence. This morning as we close, I just... Maybe there's some specific places in life where you feel this warning that you just you need to hear this prayer. Some specific places. Maybe it's in a saving way. You know, we can't rely on life on God in life day by day if we don't even have a relationship with Him. And this is what it means to be saved. To come to a place where you so recognize your sin and inability, where you're so desperate for God. So desperate for God that you despair of yourself and you put all of your hope in Jesus Christ who is the only one who can save. That's, that's the start of, of life with God. And this morning, maybe some of you are still living in your old self and you've never experienced God's saving power at work in your life to make you new. And this morning, God's just saying, come to me. Come. Let me be your sufficiency. Let me change you and make you new. But many, many others of us, in fact, most of us in the room probably are in relationship with God. And yet, in many places in our life, we're still... Struggling, We're in these seasons of waiting. What, what are you waiting on God for? I just want to encourage you. He's sufficient. He hasn't forgotten. He's mighty, and he's a great promise keeper. He can do it. He can still do it. He can do it. Trust him. Places where your heart is longing the one who, who longs for you to come close and to receive from him like a mother and a newborn child he wants you to come just receive from his life relax yourself into his arms as he nourishes you and pours himself into you as he quiets you just with his presence with his love and his power and promise relax yourself into his arms let him fill you friend places where you have need today God knows your need and he will take care of you. He is our sufficiency. Let's give ourselves to God. I'm here if you need me. There's prayer counselors in the back for very specific things going on in your life. Come and pray. Right now is your time just to give yourself to the Lord and say, God, I can't do it, but I know that you can. Increase my faith, God. I'm falling on my face today because I've recognized that you're the sufficient one. God, I need you. I trust you. going up all across this room.